0: Hello and welcome to the September edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by my colleagues from Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. It's been a funny old summer, lots and lots of rain has meant everything has stayed incredibly green but it's been a bit disappointing for some of our favourite crops. It looks like we might get a burst of sunshine this month so maybe my sweet corn will ripen and the chilli peppers will put out a few more fruits. Later on we'll be hearing from Jane Davidson, former Minister of Government in Wales and dedicated organic smallholder. Jane has recently become Garden Organics Vice President for Wales. And in our postbag, we'll be discussing the pros and cons of sowing in autumn or spring, as well as whether or not to lift carrots and parsnips from the ground in the winter months. Before all that, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produces a range of award-winning, ethical, and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils, and balms. Known as the Vitamin Company with an Organic Heart, their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. To find out more, visit their website, viridian-nutrition.com. And now I'm off to join Chris in our virtual potting shed.
1: Well, Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Fiona. How are you? I'm oh, very well. You look well. <laughs> Thank you. you we've, we've had a little break. we we have a little break over the summer?
0: Yes, I did, but it was a staycation, so plenty of time to reflect and look at the garden and yeah. think ahead and make plans and enjoy, you know, what, what's what been of this of this funny old summer we've had. Yeah, it it's
1: been a bit funny? weird, isn't it? I was, I was thinking of August. I quite like staying at home in August because everybody else goes and it's always crowded. But I like a bit of sunshine. We never got any this year, really, did we? But the real last sunshine I saw was Glastonbury which I'm glad about because it was quite expensive, but at least that was the last <laughs> time I saw any. And, uh, and the rest of the summer it's been, yeah, it's been disappointing, very wet and cool, isn't it? It's a bit of a shame.
0: It is, and uh, you get that time when it's a bit dark above, you know, and, and then it's dark below because the, the trees are... You know, in full leaf yeah. and then the skies are grey above and it, it, oh, it all yeah, starts... the light levels
1: have been low and, yes. you know they certainly have and it, it put, sort of affects your mood a little bit it certainly affects the mood of the plants I think that's for sure
0: yeah well I'm sure it does I mean what have you found you know that it has affected
1: well it's definitely my what I call my hot crops which were quite successful last year yeah of course so yeah, yeah <laughs> aubergines um, well I had great aubergines last year they've kind of all come into flower but I've had very little fruit of them same I've, as me but one success and that was a dwarf one on my balcony and that's given me a few But apart from that um my my tomatoes most of them on the lot most of them haven't gone red i think i I tend to grow mine open grounds um and they also got blight quite early on as well but i took that but i picked all the tomatoes just because the plant is is, as they haven't gone red all the plants suffering a bit doesn't mean to say you can't get some food out of it because i'll do is i'll just make a huge pesto and that can go in the freezer and that's great with pasta so it's not a loss but it's not been the bumper Crop I had last year for those hot aubergines, peppers, chilies, those kind of plants have been been a bit bit, bit disappointing this year. Loads of cucumbers for some reason I don't know why. <laughs> well, they like it cooler, don't yeah, they? Yeah, well, I've I got suppose. cucumbers coming out of the ears. <laughs> well, let's explore this tomato
0: blight problem because I, you know, I, I've been fortunate I've managed to escape it so far although I haven't had much of a yield off my tomatoes um, I must say I've got a sort of medium yield um, they're just sort of turning gradually you know a few a day and I've got all these flowers at the top and, and now it feels a little bit cooler I just don't think they're going to do anything but let's see but I do have other friends of mine who have been totally wiped out by blight
1: yeah it's quite common on my site there's not much you can do about it really some people treat them with uh, diluted milk as they come through. Like a potatoes, they do the same with the potatoes. Uh, you've got to be pretty organised for that. I'm not. Um, and I think that, because it's airborne, you're really, you're kind of, you know, you, you're kind Once you've got it, you need to. Go. So for, for people who haven't got it yet, what should they be looking out for? Well, just look, you'll just get sudden dieback. So the, the plant will just curl and go brown. And so I've had whole plants that have just, that's just massive cell death, basically. Um, so and on the
0: fruit itself, what
1: you, you can get, you get top rot. You get brown rotting at the top of the tomato as well, and then it will do the whole tomato. Even after you've picked it, you can still sometimes get the blight going through it. So it is pretty fatal to be honest with you it really is so if you get sudden die back big brown parts of the tomato then you know you've copped it basically yeah um,
0: so what about chopping back all the leaves and leaving it so yeah. that
1: you so that you can hope for the fruit in, in september i think it's probably trick pretty tricky yeah, yeah. okay Bit, yeah you've yeah. sort of left it i think that go for the pesto as well. i think it's go you know, for pesto pick <laughs> yeah.
0: it pick it and enjoy it the pesto. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly make the best of a, of a bad yeah, yeah, yeah. thing all right
1: the thing is when you do a lot not growing on vegetable growing, but it's just, it's just making sure you spread your bets because it's the UK, we're never quite sure what we're going to get.
0: And actually that's because we grow things from all, all over the
1: world. Yeah, all over the world, yeah. And sometimes yeah. you get a hot summer and the tomatoes love it. So it just depends what, what the climate's going to give us, basically, what kind of summer we have, growing season we have. Don't rely on one... Thing too much. What's done well for you? Well, like I say brassicas have been good. Um, I had some lovely Swede and turnip, but like I so quite early in the season. They were amazing. Um, what else has done? I'm glad not a bad idea for salad crops because normally you have trouble. I have trouble with them bolting if it's hot, so they haven't done that. So I've had a lot of really decent rocket. Cucumbers. I've had falling out my heart. I had to knock on my neighbour's door and give her ten cucumbers the other day, she really didn't look like she wanted them. (laughs) And uh, and so, yeah, they've done all right. So I, I mean, I've been taking through July and August now, intercepting pretty much, you know, half a shopping bag to a shopping bag of food off my allotment every day. So it's it's really fed me. Yeah. Some crops have not been successful as others. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well I've my courgettes have done okay. Um my rhubarb has been a joy, yeah. actually. Um, but um I've got a fig tree in my garden and it's covered in figs, but they won't ripen.
1: Yeah, they don't. They are a Mediterranean exactly plant. They the same need problem. they need the heat. They need yeah. the heat. Um, they get them on, on my allotment in London, the all the old um, Greek lads, there's quite a lot of them. Greek cypriotic community on there. They've all got these different figs, but I think they're a little bit cheeky. I think they 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 know which varieties work and which ones don't, and they're quite possessive about it. But if I chat up, there's a little old lady just right at the back of me. I chat her up sometimes. She gives me a nice she gives me a nice bowl of figs because yes. they are amazing. They, when they are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean,
0: I have to say, it's usually really really prolific that tree. Yeah, it's, it's I incredible. think it's
1: they're not going to ripen without the sunshine. No, that's, that's the thing. No, yeah, yeah. But
0: a good year for soft
1: fruit. Yes, well, they like the cooler temperatures. Obviously, I mean Scotland, famous for its soft fruit. That's where a lot of lot of the uh, British soft fruits grown. So
0: yeah, the strawberries and the raspberries seem to have done done really well. Um, I didn't grow any myself. Uh, I went to a pick your own recently, yeah, and it, was, it. they, oh, it's brilliant! Yeah. There were absolutely loads and loads of them. It's fantastic. So I've been jam making, and the other thing I did for the first time is I pickled some cucumbers. Um, and I thought pickled cucumbers was something that you had to do and then leave them for months on end before you ate them. Oh. Rubbish! No, you can do it quickly. You d- you just do it leave <laughs> yeah. them almost straight away. Well, maybe that's the solution for my, my, <laughs> yes. uh, my
1: cucumber glut. Yes, it is a solution. <laughs> it is a solution, yeah. I'll easy. put Mrs Collins on that straight away for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how she gets on. Yeah. Um, looking out to the garden, wanting it to look nice during the autumn, of course, yeah. Kind of like the grass to look a bit nicer. What would you advise to kind of bring a lawn back at this stage? Because ours has just been—it's almost been too wet, so difficult to mow. It just yeah, doesn't sure.
1: Look it's been good yeah, at all It's I mean, obviously, I mean, this is a as, as professional gardener or as a groundsman as I've been in the past. Autumn's quite an important time, so I'll give it quite a lot of treatments. Obviously, the big thing with grass is aeration, is making sure the roots can get down. If you're on a heavy clay, grass will always struggle. It'll always look a bit thin. In a little way, it's not such a bad thing for an organic garden because maybe your clovers and your daisies will come yeah, in. absolutely. And fill it in, you see. but So it depends on you know how, how, what you're after. But I think if you want a nice thick sward, this time of year I would uh, probably tie in it, which means you literally punch holes in it. You could do it with a garden fork just to break any pan that's under the surface yes. so the soil could drain scarifying you've heard me talk about this so many times on the blog scarifying is my favorite trick for for um, lawn care and if you get a lawn rake if you've got a massive lawn you might need a machine to do it you get a lawn rake what you're basically doing is you're taking out all the dead grass that's underneath the the live grass and you break the stolons the underground stems and it causes the grass to tiller which means you just get a thicker sward you get more grass growth coming out of the stems that really works and i probably overseed it in in september Definitely late September, I'd overseed it, bit of rye, a bit of Kentucky blue maybe, quite hard sort of grasses if it's used a lot, pets and football or whatever. And then get it going again. Yeah, aeration, scarification, overseed. That Three tips for that.
0: Right. Okay. That sorts the grass out. Now we're looking across the flower bed. Yes. All right. So um, it's a brilliant time of year to be thinking about next year, isn't it? I always think that. This always encourages me. Yeah, Rather yeah. than dwelling on, you know, the summer that's just been, let's look ahead to next year when it's going to be glorious and <laughs> it's going to be full of colour and joy and, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, you know, fruit, flowers and the whole thing. So tell me... Right now, what could I be doing to really
1: give my flower beds a boost? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting with flowers, isn't it? Because they uh, make mainly flowers like herbaceous or whatever, even a lot of the bedding, they're summer based, right? Like, so, not you know, you, can, you can get plenty of flowers in the winter if you go for more shrubs, daphnes. Um, sarcococca, this sort yes. of stuff. Oh, so you can, I you love a Daphne. Yeah. And you get that sense as well. So that it's yes. not time not for Beautiful. flowers, it's just the, the form of the plant is going to change a little bit, okay? So you can get a lot going on in the winter, but you just need to think about different types of plants. Um, you also want to think about Tassels, Gary, Elliptica, stuff like that. You get these beautiful, Iterialis, you mm. know, Tibetan cherry, a beautiful red, shiny bark. So there's other ways you can get colour into the garden, Yes, you see. Yeah. So you just have to think a bit more holistically about it. If you really, really want flower, obviously put your spring bedding in now put your fiola in, maybe for later in the year, your forget-me-nots, your wallflowers, they'll give you flower at the end of the spring. Obviously, it's going to be bulb time soon. We'll be filling up all the bulbs. So even your snowdrops will be out in January, February. So there's all that you can put in as well. I personally, I love... The autumn, and this is where my head's starting to think, I just love the idea, as you mentioned, the planning in it. I love the fact that I can now move the chess pieces around. I think that's yes. quite a nice way yeah, of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm thinking of a Gertrude Jekyll border. I say.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, is this something on the only the, best, only,
1: on, only the best on my lot? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> splendid. And then, yeah. yes. And what they, she used to do a basis board is where she would go softs or cools to hots. And so she would have all the sort of um, cooler colours, Artemisia, maybe pink, white phloxes, light pink phloxes, um, Maclaeas, and then she'd put all the hot colours in the middle. So you maybe you could have canna in there, or red salvias, purple salvias, orange plants like GMs. So you get you can imagine it. These cool into hot, mm. cool into hot. And it's just a nice little way to think about it. But obviously that's for next year. I will probably lift and divide to create that with the existing the I've got. Maybe you bring a few new plants in. If you're not touching your basis, leave the tops on. They're great for nature. They look great in the silver frost. But you can have a little plan away this time of year.
0: So I um, have a whole load of dahlias that i planted this year and um they have bushed up into nice plants mm. but the flowers have been so late that I'm a bit reluctant I want to see if I'm going to get you know at least a flush yeah. of flowers off them um but I've got a few buds but but they haven't come into flowers obviously I'm you know we we're, we're talking now right at the beginning of September yeah. um however if it's going to be a different uh, conditions next year it's quite likely to be different conditions next year what would you advise for those sorts of um plants that actually you can you can then bring them inside, bring the tubes yeah. inside? because if I'm nervous um about lifting a dahlia that hasn't yet flowered,
1: yeah, well, I wouldn't worry about this so I wouldn't lift anything until first frost for a start. I right, know, okay. They, you'll see a daily, they'll just first cold night they'll just blacken they up. They'll go, yeah, absolutely. And then I went. I was always taught by, by my, you know, my peers in the parks and stuff to lift them because if especially if you're on heavy soils, they, the the, the um, they'll rot quite easily if they're left in wet ground. And we've got a wet summer, so what I do is I lift them, and then you'll see on them the eyes, like a potato almost. These buds that sit on them, I would then shave those off, you know, into a strip with a bit underneath. Store them in sand. Do that in the greenhouse, cooler temperatures, and let them over winter like that, and then get them away again in the spring. You'll see they're starting to shoot.
0: So it's a cluster of kind of um, oval shaped, yeah. you know, tubers. Yes. So does that. Um, cluster have to stay together, or can you actually? You can pull divide. Them apart? You can divide.
1: Yeah, this is the beauty of everything herbaceous. You can just you can divide. And, and another thing I was talking to Garner like herbaceous borders. Really, every three to four years, you should lift and divide an herbaceous plant. Because what happen in its natural environment, it will want to spread. So you tend to have the, the center of the plant tends to die out as the plant works its way out. To prevent that, lift and divide. You'll keep those crowns nice and tight, basically. Okay, and can you go down to 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 literally one of those tubers? Yeah, of course
0: you, you, can. Know, you can, can. Yeah, I'd, take it right take down, tubers up
1: and pot it up, pot it in a nice sandy soil, gravelly ah. soil, and let it get away in the in the spring It's not, not a problem at all. You tend to find the dahlias I've lifted divided. You think you put them in, in back in the ground and they don't appear for quite a long time. You mm. think, oh. Actually, no, they can come really late dailies. My dailies have been really late this year. But I mean, I've got flowers the size of dinner plates at the moment. It just They are spectacular. I think you've just got to be a bit patient with them.
0: I'm going to give them a few more weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm late with my sunflowers as well. And they, they're they tall and they've formed the buds. Yeah. But they're just not I wanting to stick come out with it. To I'll stick with it. We could do them a couple of
1: sunny weeks in September. We
0: could. Yeah, yeah we really do need that late <laughs> yeah, summer, don't yeah. we? We really do. So if you then um, have done... Done all your lifting and your dividing and you've you know, you've sorted out um your Gertrude Jekyll Order, yes, we got to check the border. And all the rest of it, you, there's probably a little bit of housekeeping needed to be done on the compost heap. I would have thought.
1: Yeah, well, I was suggesting. Well, I certainly will do it one last turn before the temperature starts to drop. I, like I said before, I like to turn with my hands because my arms. Because I love getting dirty. <laughs> now, but also I get slow worms in there, so I'm quite careful. Um, but I have got. I mean, that, that's as I said. I will never put compost out until the spring, early spring. Right, that's what I was going to yeah, ask you. because now, because it otherwise it just sits there. The nutrient leaches through. Um, I remember being at Q years ago. They were. Um, they found out. You, they were heavily mulching in the autumn and it was affecting pH and uh, and it wasn't okay. breaking down because there's not the bacteria in the brain. So I prefer, unless it's... I'm trying to protect a tender plant yeah. around the base of the mulch, I will always mulch in the spring. So I'll give it one last turn for the moment. I might give it another one in the winter, but then I'll worry about it in the spring. That's probably what will happen. I like to keep a eye on the moisture content. I don't want it drying out too much. So I might... Flip a few uh, if it's a dry. If we get a dry winds. I might put a bit of water on it. That's for sure. I do have one bay that's just full of pernicious weeds because <sighs> so that's all uh, cooch and um, horsetail. And uh, that's you know that's a dilemma because they'll just stay and you will you them back out and, they'll, and the roots they'll just keep going. They're yeah. incredible. So I'm maybe thinking maybe of doing a big tea so I'll drown them. Um, yeah. If it's not too smelly, so you'll
0: sort of sieve them out, as it were. Or, yeah,
1: then I'll, you yeah. See, yeah, you can see. Yeah, you'll see, see it all in there. You'll see. Yeah. So I'll dig. I'll dig it out with a shovel, and I'll probably and I'll 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 be very careful doing that. But I'll dig that out and um and then I'll see what's still there and I'll drown them. I think I could use that as a tea as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Okay. Good advice. <laughs> um. So um. I must just tell you about my pond, which has been lovely this year, although has got very overgrown around the edges because it's just been so wet. I've not got down there, and of course there's all this lush growth because of all the rain. Um. Um, but I'm delighted to say that I appear to have got on top of the blanket weed Um, uh, I did um, treat it with liquid barley straw Uh kind of you know once a week or so during the early part of the summer um, which I'm sure has made a difference but I, I am curious. I mean, I have never used a hose on it um, because I'm very, very lucky and it's most unusual, I realise this, but I share a well with my next door neighbour. We're a semi-detached house. Yeah. It's a well between the two houses and the pH of the water in the well was absolutely the right pH for a pond. Yeah. So, and it's rainwater, of course, because that's that's what
1: a well's full of. So I've never put hose water in it. I think I'll, that makes a big difference. Yeah, I wondered. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. Because you think about... London water's got chlorine in it, nitrates in it. There's quite a lot of chemicals in our drinking water for various reasons. (laughs) So I think that certainly the the rainwater will mean you get less algae, less this sort of, you know, less. Uh, invasive species i think if you've got that balance uh in, in your pond it sounds like what's happening so you'd probably the advice to people is if if you possibly can top up your pond off your
0: absolutely water yeah catch yeah. it
1: catch it if you can yes. get your butts out and, uh, yeah, and catch yeah. that rainwater
0: <laughs> <laughs> lovely vision that is <laughs> um
1: i'm going to ask you what
0: you're sowing now
1: I've, I've still, still put a little bit of salad crop in I've still got my okay. salad bar I'm still on the allotment I've re- I just literally a few days ago I put in salad rocket and a, some cut and come again bit of lettuce so I'm still doing that it's quite a nice time to do it because I know they're not going to bolt which really helps I'll put in some uh, sweden turnips again they probably won't get very big but I'll let them sit for the winter they seem to be fine doing that ah uh, yeah then, well that's uh, handy isn't yeah, yeah. it is yeah I have to cover them otherwise the pigeons will eat, eat them to pieces so okay. I have to put them in under the netting and stuff but that'll do right I could sow some hardy annuals now if I wanted Good californian poppy, cornflower, um, all that kind of stuff. I could do that now. I might do that, in fact, and um, and then I'll they'll go out in the spring. Um, it all just depends. That's a choice, really. I, I prefer to do hardy annuals very early spring because I think they're less prone to attack from slugs, etc.
0: Yeah, and just reflecting back on this year, so on your allotment, um have you found that those plants more native to us, those ones, perhaps the, the brassicas in particular, have done a lot better this year?
1: I've only had one real dilemma on my brassicas and my kale. We get an outdoor whitefly, which I expect has come out of the greenhouse yes. at some point. So I do get a bit on there. I remember a few years ago when we had a really mild winter, you could hit the kale and just a cloud would appear. Yes. And I've got a little bit on there, but that doesn't, I mean, some people might be fussy about this. I just wash that off. I wash that off. It goes off under the tap. You know, it never really seems to cause too much of a dilemma for me. And then I, you I know, mean, I don't even bother cooking kale. I'll have a dose of lemon and a bit of olive oil and I'm away. So I wouldn't let it... Unless it was a massive infestation, I wouldn't worry so much. And um, when it comes to brassicas, do you net yours? Yes, I've got a cage, a big... Cage it grates me a bit because it I get it all looking beautiful with the Hardy annuals I've got this big green thing in the in the middle of yeah, it. Yeah, so, they yeah, they are yeah. ugly,
0: aren't they? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it does. But yeah. the brassicas inside look amazing because yeah. nothing's infiltrating. Yeah, I, my main problem with brassicas is pigeons, and I am yeah. uh, even more so than any um, cabbage white butterfly, to be honest with you. So I need to net them really, and they do look mighty fine. And I like the idea of being able to graze them through the winter. That's kind of why I do it. Well,
0: I have to say, with all this planning ahead, I, th- I think you're going to have a wonderful year next year, and I'm um very inspired to think about doing some of the same stuff myself. It's
1: always something to look forward to in this game, Fiona.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Lovely to talk to
1: you, Chris. And you, Fiona.
0: Now, Garden Organics founder, Lawrence Hills, wrote books all about organic growing, and the younger generation of his day relished the challenge to conventional horticulture. Amongst them, a couple called Guy and Jane Davidson, who have been lifelong organic gardeners and now have a small holding. Jane was a teacher and then moved across into politics and held several portfolios, one being Minister for the Environment for Wales. In 2015, Jane spearheaded the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which meant that all public bodies now have to, by law, consider the impact of every decision they make on future generations. It's a groundbreaking piece of legislation and strikes a real chord with those of us who believe that organic gardening and farming makes the world a better place for our children. Recently, I caught up with Jane, and I asked her first to explain exactly where she lives.
2: We're in uh, North Pembrokeshire, in a village called St Dogmalls. In terms of our climate... Uh, We're one of those areas which is a microclimate because of being very close to an estuary. We are on the kind of lowest category of land, you know, peripheral sheep grazing, which always interests me in the sense that, I mean, I think we're growing 143 different things this year and we can grow all those things here. But the land itself is not good in the sense that When we first moved here 10 years ago, um, we had to bring in about 12 tonnes of topsoil just to cover the shale. But because we garden organically, we have just built the soil. And my my soil in my area is probably now half a metre of soil to work with. And that's really important is that we can do these things on very unpromising ground. The area that Guy grows in um, was a market garden. Uh, 30 years ago. So actually, he started. (laughs) We're not competitive or anything, but he started with an advantage (laughs) in the sense that somebody had already done the organic work on that garden. And um, uh, when we first moved in, we didn't even know we had a greenhouse because everything was covered in brambles. We cut down um, basically 10 foot of brambles, Did you dig them out,
0: Jane? Did yeah, you...
2: we dug them out, apart from around the edges. So, you know, brambles are really, really important. Um, we keep bees. Brambles are really, really important in terms of the flowers, but also the incredible, you know, blackberry produce that you get every year. So we, we dug them out in order to create the growing space in which Guy has his quite traditional Lawrence Hills 26 raised beds. And, you know, when we talk about... Um, having a book in your pocket, a muddy book in your pocket, it is Lawrence Hill's book
0: I Guy has. That's amazing um, to think that our founder... Um, you know, is is still very much having great influence. And you've talked a little bit about uh, the challenges that you faced when you arrived um, in certain parts of the site and needing to bring in the topsoil and then improving that, presumably with your own compost and all sorts of um, other kind of organic methods. Um, but, But really now, what are the challenges? What is it that you have to sort of battle against?
2: Well, I think the, the challenges change every year in a way. I mean, I think we've got a we've pretty well worked out what grows well every year. Um, and so they are our staples and we have no worries about that. But literally one year, the pigeons will eat the top of all the peas well actually i should say every year the pigeons eat the <laughs> off all the peas unless unless we've netted them early enough but um, you know one one year you'll get you'll get something and uh, and peas actually don't grow well here peas are peas are peas are troublesome um, and the you know so we and we've tried all sorts of different varieties we'll always have a crop but it's always a small crop for the amount of peas we put in the ground um so you just get things that don't grow well um my blueberries never come to much i mean obviously they they like a an, a, an acid soil anyway um uh, and maybe i don't apply enough pine needles to them um maybe i should separate them out but um they look very nice they're sturdy plants but they don't they don't fruit uh, very much. So you also learn what works um in your area. And I think that's always a, a a sort of really good starting position, is what other people are able to grow. Anything in the camellia family grows incredibly well. And you just see it, you, you see them in everybody's gardens and they are extraordinary. Anything in the jasmine family appears to grow incredibly well here too. So for people who like flowers, you know, you can actually focus on the ones that do well. And I think the other thing is that we, we do quite a lot of exchanging. So um, some people who are much more precise than us in the way they garden may grow interesting things that we don't, um, uh, but they deliberately won't grow courgettes because they have about 10 neighbors who could give them courgettes <laughs> at this time of year. So I think that one of the great things about gardening is also all that exchange. So whether it's the pickles, whether it's the jams and the jellies, whether it's the cider, we make, our, we make many, many gallons of cider from our apples and Perry from the pears. You know, you, you, have, you have a something to exchange with people. You have something to take to people's houses. And we've been doing this whatever size garden we have. You know, we're, we're actually doing this on about half an acre here. Um, But when we were living in the city, we had a really thin but 100 foot of garden. Um, And we deliberately chose a house that was south-facing with a long garden. But then we fell in love with a house that was in a north-facing valley with a very, very steep tiered garden that was just impossible for growing. But we still managed soft roots. Right plant, right place and all that
0: sort of stuff you find. Right
2: plant, right place. And it doesn't matter how big a piece of land you have. I mean, we we grew avocados from avocado pips on um, windowsills when I was a child in Africa. And then they went out into the garden. Now that wouldn't work for a fruit here, but actually you can grow many other things on windowsills. Uh, that then could go out in the garden here. And so what we've done with our kids is we grow tomatoes on windowsills first and then they go outside and then they get planted and then they get harvested by then. So there's so many ways in which gardening, it just opens up your eyes to everything, the seasons, the weather.
0: You know, uh, as they say, there's a lot of weather in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are you noticing about the weather and the climate conditions?
2: Well, the seasons are breaking down, but, you know, I, in, my, in my sort of professional work, I look at issues related to climate and sustainability. So they're breaking down in ways I would expect, um, but ways that not everybody expects. And I think that what very much happens in the context of growing is that, you know, we, we used to be able to rely on a sort of wet spring and a relatively dry summer and that's been largely inverted this year, um and of course, what it has meant is that you know our garlic, which is now out of the ground, is only a third- you know only two thirds the size it would normally be. Our onions we had to really water heavily in in terms of making sure we had decent sized onions, et cetera. Um, so water is a becoming a real issue, and our we we try and do one big green thing every year, and we've got water butts on most of our downpipes, but we are gonna put water butts on all our downpipes. Round the house, we've got a cabin where we grow our veg, we've got on our greenhouses, we're going to put um, uh, water butts as well. So I think we have to get into the mental frame that we have to save these precious resources as much as possible.
0: I'm interested to hear what you've just said about um, putting a water butt on every single downpipe. I'm, it's, uh, it's something I, um, it's a challenge I might pick up myself, actually. Um, we've increased ours, but I, I might uh, follow your lead on that. I think that's a very interesting challenge. How do these... Uh, fantastic and and you know inspiring principles for for day to day living, which an awful lot of us also aspire to. We we as organic gardeners, we're thinking about a lot of this ourselves. We know our resources are precious, but for you, um, your your day to day living actually also mirrors your professional life and your your aspiration for being on a mission around sustainability and promoting sustainability in everything that you you do in in the public realm and I wonder if you could just talk about that and perhaps the connection between the two
2: I was brought up in Africa um, in Zimbabwe um, where my father went uh, to start a medical school there um, so I spent um, my life from the age of uh, sort of four to 15. Um, growing up in what was then Salisbury, now Harare, and I'm a very outdoors person um, uh, in in any weather. <laughs> so, um, and that love of nature started very young for me. It it, it started just on, on being on my bike going out um into the felt um uh, and you know learning to be a bit careful looking out for snakes those those sorts of things because you learn about your your natural environment and um and that was mine so my, there might be a, an antelope that would jump up in front of me there might be there might be a snake there might well be monkeys there certainly would be lots of birds um but we didn't have any of the sort of big game near us and um so i was never really at any risk apart from it being unwary but just the being in nature and then you know the and the sitting watching nature um was something that uh, i did without knowing it had a name so i'm always considered myself somebody who you know i'm an environmentalist without ever knowing that that was a thing it just is It It just just is. is. And I think it is about this is where I think that the the old Aristotle saying um, that was also picked up by Ignatius Loyola, which is, you know, give me the child of seven and I'll give you the man. So I am absolutely passionate about the idea that if we if we work with really young children about the value of nature, then actually we can breed habits and we sustain that throughout their childhood lives. We can breed habits that um, will sustain us forevermore. I mean, Guy, my husband, you know, the grower, <laughs> his, I mean, he was a, he was a member of you know, Walton on Thames' Young Naturalists at the age of five. Um, he still is the best creature spotter I've ever seen. He literally can he can spot them in a field, a pheasant or a deer or anything. He's just his eye is just there. And that and and that's a learned skill. And we could all have that uh that skill. So I think it's valuing it is really, really important. And I suppose I was really conscious I valued nature. So we always went for holidays in beautiful places. And it was the place rather than activities that attracted us. Um, uh, as a family, we might well be camping by a waterfall where we could swim in it or whatever. But I think that the where it linked to my professional life was one of those epiphany moments when I was asked to take on the environment and climate change portfolio. Um, the technical title was Environment, Sustainability and Housing back in 2007. And I always research everything I do. And I didn't know, well, none of us really knew much about climate change at the time, apart from the scientists who have been trying to shout for 30 years uh, in, into kind of oblivion. And it was deeply shocking to see that effectively fossil fuels, I mean, they are, they are the biggest, most evil element of this. So, you know, if your lives are kind of fueled by oil uh, or gas or both, and of course, most of our lives are, Um, then actually we were contributing towards an impossible life for for our children. And it was kind of, for me, it was one of those massive wake-up calls. And we literally, as a family, we decided to try and do one big green thing every year to um, take us off, as a family, as much as possible, the reliance on the things that were causing a problem, and then that becomes a way of life. So, you know, we started with, um, you know, uh, I mean, kind of like moving off gas central heating, Um, we changed our cars, Uh, we started using bicycles more, we started using the train more, we started walking more. And If you start thinking about this as a value system and trying to take that out of every part of your life, it changes everything. It changes what you eat. It changes how you travel to places. It changes what buildings you live in or what buildings you're prepared to work in. Um, It changes what energy source you have. I mean, from that moment, uh, we went to, and there's still only a tiny number of real renewable energy companies in the uk from which you can buy um green energy um and we change to that so we've now in every aspect of our lives i i only go for fashion if i know that, pub, um, well, some could say I don't go
0: for fashion at <laughs> all.
2: But, but in a sense, we, we, we even do this in terms of the clothes we buy. We try and only use sort of fair trade cotton. We try and make sure, sure that the, the, there is no kind of like appalling child labour use. So suddenly you end up thinking you're thinking about one thing, but it takes you into the territory where you realise that the unthinking choices we make are normally about what's best for me and the unthinking and now I'm trying to do thinking choices in every decision I make about what's best for me and the planet and by the planet I mean the rest of humanity and nature so it's no longer it's not an I it's a we and so it's not it's a in one sense, one could say it's a moral code, but really it's a set of values. You know, how much do you care? I mean, we've all got, you know, we're not, I don't mean everybody has kids and grandchildren because that's obviously not the case. But as humanity, we, have, we, we all have um, kind of older people we love and children we love. Um, and I think that is pretty ubiquitous. And actually, you know, not being able to look a child in the eye and say i'm doing everything i can to give you a good life just seems to me untenable so my whole life now is predicated on how how we can all behave better to give current and future generations um, a better chance at a better life. When we know that these big climate challenges, these big nature challenges, you know, the climate challenge is we're likely to exceed the 1.5 degrees that's the safe place for humanity this year. Um, although it'll probably go back down again, but you know, it's a, it's like a massive wake up call. And we've lost 70% of species in my lifetime. And that's another massive wake up call. So how do we get all of us to be thinking about um, how to make life better for us all? Because that, that has to be uh, the best future for humanity.
0: You've made it really clear that you are absolutely passionate about the next generation, you know, the people who come uh, after us, and and wanting to uh, leave the world with uh, an intention for a better future than currently it seems that that is possible. And your political work um, culminated in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which came in in Wales in twenty fifteen. Can you just talk to us about that achievement because it is a phenomenal achievement, and and how it is now being picked up and replicated by other countries around the world?
2: Thank, thank you. And I think I think that um, it kind of almost goes back to that uh, you know old Chinese proverb about um, you know every journey begins with the first step, and the first step for Wales was actually linked to parliament giving Wales a duty to promote sustainable development and everything it did when it passed the Government of Wales Act in 1998. And that duty wasn't given to Scotland or Northern Ireland. So it was a unique duty um, uh, given to Wales at the beginning of the new devolved nations and having their their, their own parliaments. Um, And we just tried our best to make it work. And for the last four years of my life as a minister, I had this responsibility. And it became clear to me towards the end of that, that a duty to promote um, isn't enough because I'm promoting to you now. I'm promoting to you with every fiber of my being every day of my life. So you've got to have a duty to deliver. And that, that was the realization um, and that we came to. So essentially I wrote the architecture of what a duty to deliver could look like. Um, it needed to be linked to the sustainable development goals for example, because all countries that are members of the UN have signed up. So that's um, you know, nearly 200 countries have signed up to deliver on sustainable development goals by 2030. So linking it to the sustainable development goals was really important um, in terms of, of um, creating legislation that would have a voice in the world. Um, the government itself needed to be accountable to it because most governments make laws for others. Uh, but, by the government itself being accountable to it, um, it meant that the government would be able to show leadership. So you needed external accountability, which is a future generations commissioner, entirely independent of government, but also external accountability through the auditor general who audits all the public services. So for me, this is very much about systems thinking, about values. So you set it so you now, Uh, In Wales, there is a duty to deliver on seven goals linked to the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, So uh, you would expect them to be, you know, uh, uh, how do we increase biodiversity how do we tackle climate how do we redefine prosperity in a low carbon way how do we protect culture and, and, and language for future generations um, how, how do we make people healthier not by counting ambulances but actually what are the conditions for good health um, how do we make our communities safer and more vibrant um, how do we uh, globally for example, um, make sure that anything we do when we do, we, we have a relationship with anywhere else in the world, do it in the same spirit as we act in Wales. And and they those goals have just released imagination of people in terms of doing completely different kinds of actions, and it is the permission to think differently. But what's also very unusual about the Act, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, is that it has on the face of it, the goals, and the five ways of working are, you have to think preventatively. You have to collaborate with others. You have to think long term. You have to involve people in how decisions are made, and you have to integrate the outcomes. That's your co-benefits. So, Having a what and a how on the face of the act meant that people know how to do it as well as knowing what they want to achieve. And the what and the how together, I think are critically important. The act was passed four years after I left government, but wasn't implemented until the following year, five years after I left government. But what I'm delighted about is the fact that all those principles of the architecture that I thought were essential as a result of my previous work were all maintained which is why you know people credit me with the architecture of the act but I want to credit all those politicians who uh, actually interrogated this you know day after day in committee to decide how to create an act that would meaningfully change Um, how government engaged with the people of Wales, meaningfully and changed the values framework for the government and passed that legislation. So it's never one person. So I might have been a catalyst, but actually it's that generation of politicians who cared so deeply about future generations and who utterly understood about the climate nature crisis. And that means that what I'm doing now as Chair of Wales Net Zero, it could not have happened without the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act.
0: How can we help in our day-to-day lives with those lofty aims?
2: I think I think the really important aspect is the the lofty aims have to be translated into actions in a local household. So you know our decision to grow as much of our own food as we can without pesticides also leads us to trying to avoid pesticides when we buy food um we buy very little processed food for example because i mean actually just a food processor can process tomatoes or anything else freezers can deal with the produce so i think that it, that you know in a sense the, a house with with the modern equipment can do all the things we're doing at a, smaller, at, a, at a smaller scale. But the enjoyment of it and the taste of it is extraordinary. And I think the other aspect is that um, once you start gardening organically, you see how the soil changes. And that, that's, um, I, I think actually that's a sort of unsung part of this story. But we... You know, we compost all our vegetables. We, we add, um, you know, horse dung to it um, uh, regularly. We add seaweed fertiliser to it, um, for example. But I mean, just, you know, in a sense, when I'm digging the compost, when it's ready, it is just a tangle of earthworms. And you have to be really, really I do it with a fork rather than a spade because of the fact that I don't, you know, I want, I want to just go in gently and, <laughs> and come out dangling.
0: <laughs> I think we all apologise to earthworms quite regularly, yes.
2: Yeah. But I just think and then when you see what it does in terms of the ground as well, um, you know, it's uh it it changes the nature of the soil. So we 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 feel that There are many, many different kinds of gardening. And around me, there are people who do no dig. There's a lot of people who do permaculture. There's a lot of people who grow biodynamically. And we just feel that there are all these different kinds of ways of gardening, which can actually end up with people who should all be on the same side of the coin, just fighting about which is best. They're all the same principle. None of us use pesticides. Um, all of us try to work with nature. And I think that that those of us on the side of nature, you know, nature friendly gardening, uh, and we're all organic in its broadest definition uh, as well. All of us who want to be nature friendly and are therefore organic, um, we need to rise up as a movement in terms of actually helping others uh, to do it too. Um, because you can actually have a beautiful, more traditional garden, but do it organically, because in my in the previous house we had where we found it much more difficult to grow vegetables, I actually grew perfectly good flower garden with shade, shade plants, but still organically, and so you know, for literally for thirty years, um, we have grown organically, and our appetite for it has grown commensurately
0: as well absolutely and we're here to raise the next organic generation Jane Davidson thank you so much for talking to us
2: thank you
0: right time for the post bag. I'm here with Anton and Chris um, we've got some crackers this month as usual but of course people are beginning to look Towards the winter And what they can grow During the winter So first question Carrots and parsnips This year I've had great success With growing carrots and parsnips More than I can eat at the moment Would you recommend Harvesting and storing them Before it gets too cold Or will they last better Left in the ground? So Chris, what's your response
1: to this? Well, I've kind of got a double-edged sword here, really, speaking about my own personal crops. Parsnips I've left in the ground the last couple of years. Sometimes in the past I've dug them up, put them in sand and stuff, but I've left them in the ground... And they've been absolutely delicious. And I just think that cold weather really sweetens them up. It really, there's something about them. i try to have them on Christmas Day, my good old f- famous Christmas Day dinner. Um, so I prefer to leave them in the ground. I don't seem to have any problems with pests with them. There is a problem with frosts, maybe if you get very heavy frost. Don't get a lot of those in London. But I get some straw and I put it down just to protect the tops of the parsnip. But I've had no problem leaving them in the ground at all. Carrots, well, on my side, I get a lot of carrot fly. And uh, they tend to bore into, you can pick, you can pull one out. There's a lot of small holes, all of them. Um, So I tend to grow them in containers. I grow a little one called globe. I grow that in the containers because of the height. Carrot fly only got so high. But if you did have a big problem, if I was really committed, I might net against carrot fly, but I tend not to. So it's a parsnip story for me, really.
0: Right, that's all about leaving them in from Chris. So Anton, what's the arguments for perhaps taking them
3: out? So there's a couple of arguments for taking them out. Um, It might be that you know that there's going to be a really hard frost, and that's more of a problem with carrots, really. Carrots really will not withstand being in a a frozen soil. What it tends to do is you find the tops rot off first, and then they tend to rot through to the core as well. And so sometimes even the carrot looks all right, but you find it's actually got a slimy core down the middle of it, which is really quite disgusting. If you know there's gonna be a be a hard frost then then harvest your carrots. Um a layer of straw and a layer of fleece will actually sort of help to some extent, but if it's a really, really hard frost then like the one we got last winter, then that really caught quite a few people out. Parsnips actually the frost improves the flavour and it's not Uh, It's not an old wives' tale that that parsnips taste better when left in in the ground after a frost. There's actually a biochemical reason. Uh, And and that is what happens is under colder conditions, the starches get converted into sugars. Parsnips taste better after the first frost.
0: Oh, gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) If you presumably... Have got to the stage where you know it's a you know it's going to be a great crop, and you you got through the season, um, and you managed to combat the slugs and the carrot fly, and and you're okay to leave them in because of the frost. Then, then I can see all those arguments for leaving them in, but presumably leaving them in would encourage pests. Is that right?
3: Yeah, if you've already got a pest problem, then. Mm. That pest problem will gradually get worse. So I, I would be more inclined to perhaps take them out then. and um, particularly if it's going to be a mild winter, because that's that's when the sort of slugs and the carrot fly are more likely to remain active. In in that case, I, I would probably take them out and then you might want to store them in um damp sand. You need to keep that sand quite damp as well. You will probably actually need to water it otherwise because it does tend to tend to dry out. Um, but that's quite a lot more faff for most people so it's a question of whether you've got the sort of space and facilities to do that it is easier to leave them in the ground
0: Yes, but that's interesting, I didn't realise you had to dampen the sand
1: Yeah, dry, stop it drying out I was just wondering with carrot flies um, so really once you've got it, once it's in the ground like on my, my allotment site, everybody suffers from it so once it's there, it becomes quite prevalent, doesn't it once it's present you think it gets worse and that's why no, it's, um, it's pointless to me leaving them in the ground because they just get attacked so heavily.
3: If they've been eating away at the roots, then they're perhaps more likely to sort of get rotted as well when yeah. that happens. So. Nobody wants a slimy core. No,
0: they no, really don't. They <laughs> really don't. All right then. Number two, I have a few packets of seeds that say you can sow in autumn or spring including sweet peas and broad beans. So what's the advantage of doing one over the other? So Chris, talk us through your sweet pea and broad
1: bean sowing. Well, I know I know that. I mean, this is an either-or to me, I think, in a way, because I know people on my allotment site that always put broad beans in in the autumn. And I think the reason they do that is they get away quicker in the spring. You get an earlier crop and also maybe the apes get around the usual blackfly infestations we have we tend to get them really bad on the site there I tend to do mine in the spring I don't know whether that's just because out of habit but I'll just start them in ribbed um, um, trainers basically so they get nice deep roots and they'll go in very early spring so it's a choice really a lot of gardeners I know swear by sweet pea to go in the autumn they think you get less trouble with pest and disease Um, the gardeners at Westminster Abbey which I still chat to they will grow all their sweet peas in the autumn Leave them in the greenhouse and then plant them out in the spring, early spring. So, but I think it's an, uh, an either or choice.
0: What do you reckon, Anton? I mean, I, I think it's it's a question of whether you're brave enough to put them in the ground or whether actually you perhaps sort of yearn over them a
3: bit more. I don't know. I think it perhaps depends where you are in the country as well, because I've certainly found that if you again, if you get a really hard frost over over the winter, then then um, the broad beans, especially if you've let them get too large. Um, can be killed off by a hard frost. Mm. Um, so I I personally tend to sow them in the spring just for that reason.
0: There's, um, I mean, there's not just broad beans, though, is there? I mean, you you, you seem to have some, a huge amount of knowledge around field beans, Anton. So is there some way we could go through the winter with field beans?
3: Field beans is it's quite an interesting one because... Um, it is actually, they are actually grown extensively in the UK, but we export quite a lot of it to North Africa because they, they eat them in hummus and falafels there. So, um it, yeah, it's quite an interesting one. Mm. We haven't really developed a taste for them ourselves, but I actually think field beans are really, really tasty. They're, they're actually the same species as um broad beans, but they are considerably smaller you actually get i found we get bigger yields off them but there's more podding because you get a large number of small beans but they are really sweet and worth worth trying
0: okay field beans that's brilliant which of course we know as a green manure um but uh, but you can also grow them as a crop and you can start them in the autumn definitely yeah, yeah. okay fantastic Right, on to question number three, all about salad. I'd like to keep my salad crops growing through autumn and winter. Is this possible if you don't have a greenhouse or a polytunnel? And if so, what varieties
3: would you recommend? So
0: I'm going to go to you, Anton, first for what varieties would you recommend?
3: Well, I actually get a lot more excited by the salads that you can grow over the winter. There's a sort of massive range of really tasty things you can grow, um I'm a bit of a mustard head I really love the taste of <laughs> spicy things um so I would definitely go for um go for the salad rocket which got nice and um, peppery taste um, mizuna as well is really good um it, it really productive over, over the winter and you can get different colors as well you can get purple mizuna as well as the ordinary colored one um there's various mustards which are sort of quite resilient to frost, like the, the sort of winter red mustard. But if you get a really hard frost, then that will probably kill them off. So it just, just sort of depends on where you are. Um, if you don't like the taste of mustard, not everybody does, then there are sort of more sort of plain tasting things. Claytonia is a really sort of productive thing. It keeps on going right into the spring. And even when it's flowering, it still seems to Taste okay as well, which a lot of other things start to taste a bit bitter when they're when they're flowering. So that's a something that's really worth growing as well. Um, there's corn salad. Um, again, that's um, a little less productive, quite bland, but is able to withstand really sort of um, cold weather. And then there's sort of good old fashioned lettuces as well, which will will withstand the um, cold winter. So. Um there's one, clues in the name, really, Marvel of Four Seasons. That's a good old-fashioned butterhead one, which is really nice and colourful as well. That works really well. And then there's sort of um, winter density little gem as as well, if you want something that has a head on it as well. So, so we think of sort of salads as being a summer thing, but actually I think the winter's more exciting for salads.
0: And in terms of yield, I mean, if somebody's not got a greenhouse, um, perhaps don't want to put them in the ground, a bit worried about the slugs or whatever... Um, how many pots and what sort of size of pots would you need to sort of keep your you know I don't know keep 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 two of you or four of you in in
3: salads sort of through through the winter months so just from my own experience we we tend to just have about six 30 centimeter pots and that keeps us in salad most of the winter I would say um over December and January just because the light levels are so low then things do grow quite a bit more slowly. Don't give up at that time. Don't think, oh, it's just fizzled out because you'll find in, in February it really gets a revival and becomes really productive right the way into sort of March and April.
0: Okay, so that's six 30 centimetre pots and your household is how many people?
3: Just the two of us.
0: All right, so for four people, we double that. Okay, I remember one year I grew them and uh, was so delighted with them, I didn't want to pick them. Um, and then and then did pick them in, in February and it was the hottest salad I'd ever Tasted, it was just extraordinary. Really blew your head off. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. Chris, you grow a lot, don't you? Outside, yeah. Um,
1: Well, my my um, I talk about it a lot. My salad bar, which is basically a big deep trough, maybe thirty centimeters, about a meter long, and I just drill so into there. And I I tend to sort of do it on a micro um, crop sort of basis. So I'll sow quite thick, twenty centimeters apart, like a lot of the crops Anton mentioned. Uh, Not quite as exotic. I'll stick to sort of um, salads. Rocket and, and pea shoots. I'm not quite as adventurous, um, but they come up and I'll get them all going all the way through the year. The growth does slow down a, a lot in the J- J- December and January because of the light levels, but I'll just sow 20 centimeter drills and then I'll inter sow every sort of three or four weeks. So you've got a constant supply of salad leaves, really. And it seems to work all right. I do have to say, I have the advantage of being in a south facing London balcony. So I don't really get, I've never seen a frost out there in seven years. So I do have that advantage. The light levels tend to affect growth more than anything. Okay,
0: well, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm looking forward to a very full salad bowl this winter myself. I'm going to follow all your instructions. So thanks ever so much, Chris and Anton. Cheers, Fiona. Thank you. See you next time. That's all we've got time for this month. I must let you know that next month we'll be hearing from Pam Corbin, also known as Pam the Jam, who will be talking all about her passion for preserving, bottling, and, of course, jam making. So I hope you're looking forward to that. And do send us in your gardening questions. You can contact us via our website or social media. We're at Garden Organic UK on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and LinkedIn. Thanks again to our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition and to Kevin MacLeod for our theme music. That's it. Until next time.